Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Eric Lindblade. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Jim Hessler. And once again, we are coming to you from the historic Joseph Scherfe House on the battlefield here at Gettysburg National Military Park. Jim, what's our topic this evening? Well, Eric, and hello again, listeners. We are back for part two of Sickles Gets Away with Murder. Now, if you joined us for part one, we talked about the life and the love of Dan and Teresa Sickles and also the insertion of Philip Barton Key, the randy but dashing district attorney who was having an affair with Teresa Sickles. We're going to pick up the story today in part two, find out what happens when Sickles confronts Key and what are the shocking after effects of this whole encounter. So stay tuned. We got a lot more to cover. It's a great human interest story associated with Dan Sickles and the Battle of Gettysburg here on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. And I should add, we are in the Joseph Scherfe house. Yeah, I'm going to keep saying it because it's really awesome. We're here. It's pretty cool. But if you do want more information about the house, what took place here, we would actually like to let you know if you've not listened to all of our episodes, or maybe you're just joining us, season one, episodes four and five focus on the fighting that rages around this part of the field, as well as Dan Sickles again. But just letting you know that those are available in the archives if you want to check them out and learn more about the family that lived in the house that we're coming from right now in 1863. And if I can add on top of that, the book that I co-authored with Licensed Battlefield Guide Britt Eisenberg, Gettysburg Peach Orchard, of which a lot of the Peach Orchard podcast was based on. So it's all interconnected. It all comes back to Sickles in the podcast. And we're so happy to be here at the Sherfy Farm. Again, thanks to the Gettysburg Foundations in the Footsteps of Leaders program, which is a leadership program, educational program the Gettysburg Foundation gives. And we're going to be talking more about that in the coming weeks as Eric and I enter into kind of an exciting partnership with In the Footsteps of Leaders. But Eric, do we have any exciting events of our own coming up? Actually, Jim, we do. May 9th, 2020, Jackson at Gettysburg. Now, this is not a what-if tour. We're not doing alternative history. We're going to be looking at the performance of Richard Yule, Confederate reorganization. Would Jackson have really done anything significantly different than Yule here? So a lot of things to unpack and uncover. Uh, we do have a seminar session, which is sold out. So all of those in there, we thank you for that. We do still have tour-only tickets for sale, $25 per person. Folks, that's a heck of a deal to get four hours of battlefield tours from two battlefield guides on the field. So good deal. Hope you'll join us May 9th. For more information on it, please email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we really want to thank all of our fans, all of our listeners, everybody who uh, is going to attend. The seminar portion sold out really in less than 24 hours. Eric and I are thrilled by that. Also, too, again, want to thank the Gettysburg Foundation in the Footsteps of Leaders program. They are letting us have the seminar at the historic George Spangler Farm. So if attending the seminar, you've never been on the Spangler Farm, that's going to be a real treat also. So thanks to everybody involved. 
And also tying back into a previous episode we did, our good friend and colleague, licensed battlefield guide Wayne Motts, the George Spangler Farm is the site where Brigadier General Lewis Armistead dies. But certainly for those of you at the seminar, I think you'll be in for a treat. Eric, if people want to know what's going on with the podcast or get in touch with us, how can they do that? Well, we are all over social media. If you want to find us on Facebook, you can at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, or you can email us gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to remind you, please like and share us on social media if you get a chance. Help the word get out about the show. Also, if you've not done so, please subscribe. Write us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. It's a big help and it means a lot. Had a lot of reviews coming in. Many of them, you guys are way too kind. It certainly makes us very happy to see uh, that, that you're enjoying the show and the content we're putting out. And continue being kind because we appreciate the positive reviews. Because again, you know, we want to be more than two boring guys talking history because nobody would want to hear that. So before we get into tonight's episode, How Dan Sickles Got Away With Murder, Jim, tell us a little about tonight's great sponsor. We are brought to you once again by our friend Michael Homula and his executive search firm of RPM Search Group. If you are looking for a new position or your company is looking to recruit new talent, you would be temporarily insane to not call RPM Search Group. If you're looking for senior executive level talent, today's James T. Brady's and Edwin Stanton's, then look no further than RPM Search Group. Visit their website at www. .rpmsearchgroup.com and see how they help companies in the United States and around the world identify, evaluate, hire talent that will improve your performance. And of course, if you're interested in being a sponsor of the show, reach out to us on social media or email us. We'd be happy to talk with you and maybe get something set up. It's a great way for you to help out the show and what we do here at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. So if all that said, when we last left off, Dan Sickles has grabbed some guns. Let's get to it. He is armed and dangerous. He is what was later described as a walking magazine. Now, Philip Barton Key, who has been walking around Lafayette Square, twirling his handkerchief, waiting for Teresa Sickles to come out, Key has basically started to move away from the Sickles house and towards the southeast corner of the square, kind of on the other side of Lafayette Square. Now, remember, Sickles' New York buddy, Sam Butterworth, has entered the square ahead of Sickles, and as Butterworth approaches approaches Key on the south side of the square, which would be literally the side that is right across from the White House. Key shouts out, good day, Butterworth. What a beautiful day we are having. And Butterworth probably exchanges some pleasantries and continues to move along. But Sickles approaches Key from the north side, the other side of the square. Eric, could this be a diversion? You know, I'm thinking Key is getting approached from two sides. Dare we say he is exposed himself in a salient but anyways sickles approaches and shouts key you scoundrel you have dishonored my house and you must die and with that the game is on so this brings us to our first listener question of the night it comes to us from facebook from superfan kevin and he writes 
what part of Lafayette Square did the murder take place in? Now, as we know, a lot's changed in Lafayette Square since 1859. So, Jim, maybe help folks. They want to visit that part of Washington, D.C. Give them a sense to where can they walk in the footsteps of Dan Sickles. Heck, Eric, visit that part of Washington, D.C. I'll give them one better because I am also a licensed Washington, D.C. tour guide who specializes in tours of Lafayette Square and the murder scene. So I would be only too happy to enhance anyone's visit by giving them a personalized tour. But for those of us who just basically want an answer to Kevin's question, here it is. So the square sits north of Pennsylvania Avenue. So you have Pennsylvania Avenue kind of running from west to east. You have the White House on the south side of Pennsylvania Avenue. And then you have the square on the north side of Pennsylvania Avenue. Sickles lived on the west side of the square that is today Jackson Place. The east side of the square is what is today labeled Madison Place. So Kevin, I know Kevin works in the area. I know he walks through the square quite a bit. Basically, the murder takes place around the southeast corner of the square. So if you're standing in Lafayette Square, put your back to the square, face the White House. The White House will be in front of you. The square will be behind you. The southeast corner is the corner of the square on your left. That's going to be where Sickles and Key confront and have this fight over poor Teresa Sickles' honor and the honor of the Sickles household. So now that we have the place, Sickles has confronted Key. Now, as we talked about, Sickles is well-armed. And this actually goes to another listener question. Superfan Phil from Ohio, a good dear friend of both of ours, is going to ask, what type of handgun did Sickles use? What's the make? What's the caliber? I guess looking for some more information about what the preferred weapon of choice that Sickles is packing on that day in February 1859. Yeah, and this doesn't surprise me coming from superfan Phil from Ohio, because I know Phil is a, an enthusiast and an expert in his own right on armament of the era. What we seem to know is that Sickles has been armed with two Derringers and a revolver. I don't have anything on the makes and the models or anything specific of that nature. You know, you guys got to remember, too, this is not CSI Sickles. You know, they didn't sort of parade the murder weapons in court and do forensics analysis and all of that stuff. So if anybody knows, you know, from your own reading or whatever, what the make and model is, please feel free to share it with us. We're part of a community that shares information with each other but for now two derringers and a revolver so you might have remembered in the last episode we gave an account of key sort of bragging about how he's always armed and his ability with weapons mm -hmm. which as we look at this at a certain level on just sort of the face value of it sickles is coming out armed to the teeth and poor defenseless Barton key doesn't have anything to defend himself with. Aww. This sounds like sickles is just taking advantage of the situation. Once again, devil Dan getting one up on somebody cowardly, cowardly shooting a man in cold blood. Eric, isn't that how popular history always portrays this? Oh, absolutely. As if key didn't do anything to deserve He's a victim, this. handsome Philip Barton key, the poor victim from you know from maryland oh now think about key's position he's the district attorney in washington dc he's trying cases when he actually does decide to work but you try cases in criminal court you're going to make enemies even today prosecutors carry guns 
So do law enforcement officers off duty because of, hey, you might cross the wrong person. They might hold a grudge. They might want to kill you. Also, it's in keeping with Washington of that era. Read accounts of the Senate and House in the late 1850s. Congressmen and senators are coming in there armed to the teeth because, hey, you don't know when a fight is going to break out and escalate. So I have no doubt that Sickles feels if I'm going out there to confront Key, I better be packing some heat because there's a good chance that Key himself already is. So you don't want to be the guy that shows up to a fight without a gun when the other guy's got one. Totally agree. And again, this is historically important because I think this murder is always misrepresented, as we said, of Sickles just pouncing on this unarmed man. I think Sickles had every reason, based on Key's past history, based on some of the factors Eric talked about, Sickles had every reason to presume Key was armed and ready for action. And as we see when we kind of get into this a little bit more, uh, there'll probably be another reason or two for him to think that. Now, the other thing, too, that, you know, I just kind of want to mention here, you know, it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon. We said it's a spring day. People are out for a walk. You know, fortunately for Sickles, there are no eyewitnesses. Aha, no, I'm kidding. Actually, there are a ton of eyewitnesses. The square is filled with people out for a walk and who are going to basically see this struggle. And this is another point that I think gets forgotten with this event is that it's not like Sickles walks out of his house and just blows Key away in the middle of the square. Before the actual shooting occurs, there is, for lack of a better term, a struggle, a wrestling match, almost hand-to-hand combat between these two guys. Yeah, by the way, that would be today's first wrestling reference, but probably not the last. Yeah, so what happens is Sickles pulls one of these guns and the first shot grazes Key. Now remember, there's a lot of people around, so Key starts shouting, murder, murder. And as Eric alluded to, there is a struggle. Sickles drops one of the guns. Now Key puts Sickles in a bear hug, but with superhuman strength and cat-like reflexes, Sickles breaks out of the bear hug. And we all know a bear hug is such a weak move. You're going to do that at least to a German suplex or something. Come on. Yeah, so Sickles is broken free of the move, though. Another gun comes out. Again, Key, you know, saying, don't murder me. Don't shoot. Don't murder me. And at this point, Key reaches into his pocket. Is Key going for the gun that we assume he's carrying? And I think that leads to a listener question. You are right. This comes from superfan MJ, and she writes, I've always wondered, was Key armed himself, and did Sickles act as if he felt Key was reaching for a weapon? Yes, and the answer to that is, Key reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a pair of opera glasses. And he flings the opera glass at Sickles. And this is a really important life lesson. Don't bring opera glasses to a gunfight. Absolutely. The, the opera glasses harmlessly fall to the ground. It will turn out later that, ironically, Key, who often bragged about being armed, was in fact not armed. But did Sickles know that? Did Sickles have any reason to expect that? And certainly if you're fighting a guy who's reaching into his pocket, I'm thinking he's going for something more deadly than the opera glasses. And also, you know, if Key's yelling, murder, murder acting like he's the victim here. Hey, he's lied about having an affair with Sickles' wife. Yeah. Who's to say he's not going to lie that I'm unarmed, and then all of a sudden pulls a gun out and shoots Sickles? Yeah, it would be perfectly within character. So this, there's a lot of moving parts, and 
I think when we look at these events after the fact, we're seeing it almost in slow motion. We have time to analyze and think. This is probably a confrontation that at this point, we're maybe at a minute or so, if that. You know, things are moving very quickly. Mm-hmm. Things are happening. You don't have time to think. You react. And frankly, Sickles is in a mood. I'm going to shoot first and ask questions later. As we said in part one, Sickles is an emotional guy. So at this point, Sickles fires into Key's groin. And Key gasped and staggered. I'm shot. I'm shot. Don't shoot me. Murder. But Sickles continued to follow him. Now it's kind of like a predator following its prey. And Sickles continued, you villain, you must die. And I've wondered, the shot to the groin, we think that's on purpose? I would be surprised if that was just a coincidence. I mean, if I'm Dan Sickles and I'm shooting him somewhere, Mm -hmm. that's where I'm going. Because it's not going to kill you instantly. I think Sickles is wanting to put Key in some pain here. And then he's, of course, as we see, going to finish the job. Now, as we saw in part one, Dandy, the Sickles dog, has just been licking Key's crotch. Do you think that might have set him over the edge, too? Maybe. Maybe he's defending the honor of not only Teresa, but Dandy? Dandy, maybe. It's, it's possible. So at this point, Key is badly wounded, and he's kind of staggering. He's starting to move up a little bit of you know what we would call today to be Madison Place. And Key is trying to hide behind a tree at this point. A tree. You know, maybe he's foreshadowing future peach trees. I don't know. Maybe I'm reaching at that point. Or maybe a Sickles witness tree maybe. by Sickles headquarters on July 2nd? So many Gettysburg connections here, we could just go on. At this point, Sickles puts the gun up to key, point blank, and it misfires. So Sickles recocks it, puts the gun to key's chest, and fires at point blank range. This time the gun worked. And what will be the fatal chest wound as Key's lungs start to fill up with blood, Key swoons back onto the ground and falls back against the tree. But Sickles is not done. He puts the gun to Key's head and fires again, but it's another misfire. And it's finally at that point that the bystanders kind of come in, kind of separate these two pugilists. And all Sickles can kind of say is people are kind of shaking him and kind of snapping him out of this. All Sickles can say is, is the scoundrel dead? He has violated my bed. Is the scoundrel dead? And one man described Sickles as rather cool and deliberate, but his face was somewhat pale at this point. And I just want to say in closing to this part, Key is showing up in front of the Sickles house unarmed. I don't know. If you're playing a very risky game here, I think I would want to be a little armed in a situation like that if I'm doing this routinely. But I think it maybe shows just the lack of forethought by Key or even just maybe simply put. He just doesn't care. Yeah, yeah. Again, maybe a little bit of entitlement there. I'm Philip Barton Key and I can do whatever I want and I can walk around these streets unarmed so much. We will never know because, unfortunately, Key did not live to uh, to tell his side of the story. One more thing, though, that I wanted to add, and I think even somebody commented on this on Facebook. Again, obviously, there is no crime scene photography, but there are two contemporary images, engravings that appeared in the newspapers afterwards. And in both of those contemporary images, you basically see... Butterworth kind of just standing by watching the whole thing and even I think in at least one of them he is literally leaning on a fence a fence that surrounded Lafayette Square Eric let's make a note for later and see what maybe ever became of that fence 
Yeah, I, I think it has a connection to Gettysburg. On, to Gettysburg, Maybe. I believe. Yeah, Maybe. We'll, we, we'll talk about that a little later. We might have to look that one up. But anyways, in Butterworth's case, he watched the whole thing, but he did nothing. And again, for those of you who are wondering, well, what happened to that guy? That's basically what happened to the guy. Now, Butterworth will sort of collect sickles, kind of lead him away from the scene. So eventually that afternoon with Butterworth's assistance, Sickles will surrender himself to the attorney general. And by one account, Sickles is unrepentant. He says, ah, one less wretch in the world. While, as you can imagine, the streets of Washington are now filled with excited people talking about what happens. So they they go back to the Sickles house at some point and Dan confronts Teresa one last time and sort of towers over her like a monument almost and says, I've killed him before Sickles is led away. Now the uh, mayor is going to order Sickles to jail, but before they do that, all the fellows kind of mix some drinks and have a cocktail or two and kind of recount the uh, the day's activities, which I always thought was was kind of interesting. But Sickles, by the end of the day, has been led away to jail and will be incarcerated. And to me, this is an interesting point of this because one, Sickles has just murdered a guy in broad daylight. He's got weapons and you're just letting him go see his wife. Yeah. Yeah. What could go wrong there? You know, I mean, this wouldn't be the first time the guy kills a lover and then kills the spouse, which I think kind of always was very strange to me. They mm-hmm. let him do that. Yeah. Right. Even though this is different culture, 19th century to me, that still seems like you're really tempting fate there. If I'm not mistaken, I think Sickles promised he would not harm her and certainly isn't a man's word. His bond. At least with Dan Sickles. Exactly. It is. Also, keep in mind the location of this. This is an eyesight of the White House. Sickles, very good friends, a confidant of our 15th president, James Buchanan. Certainly one of the greatest presidents <coughs> in United States history. Well, he's the only president from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We digress. But nonetheless, I think we have a little bit on the reaction that President Buchanan had to this, because certainly this was shocking news, not only to the people in Lafayette Square and Washington society, but the chief executive of the United States. Yes, literally the highest halls of power within the land. So as the story goes, a White House page basically bursts into Buchanan's office and says to the effect of, oh my God, did you, you know, did you see this? Did you hear this? Sickles his shot key. And as one of the stories goes, Buchanan says to the page, well, did you see it? Uh, Sort of thing. And then supposedly the president gives this young man some money and tells him to get out of town. That seems on the up and up. What could, what could be wrong with there? Almost like an episode of House of Cards. Isn't the, kind of the, the way this thing is sort of shaping up here? House of Sickles? House of Ooh, I like that. We should pitch that. Well, we already have Sickles Mania sort of branded. House of Sickles. We'll just keep going with this. Okay, so Key was not immediately killed in the square. He was still alive, barely. So he was taken up, uh, again, what is now Madison Place, to this clubhouse that we referred to in part one. The clubhouse was a large private residence that was at the time converted to a boarding house and is also known as the John Rogers House. Now, again, this building is not standing today. There is a court building still on that site, but that was where Key was known to rent rooms, so they took him back there to i guess let him die now before we go into that story eric a little bit of trivia question and somebody did mention it on facebook but do we know what famous event also took place in the same clubhouse or the john rogers house oh just about five or six years later 
Of course, this will be the failed assassination attempt of Secretary of State William Seward, who was here in Gettysburg on November 19th for Lincoln's address, and the assailant, Lewis Powell, was here at Gettysburg serving the 2nd Florida in David Lang's brigade. Interestingly enough, where we are sitting right now, we would be looking towards the direction where Lang's troops were coming from. We could look out the back window towards Seminary Ridge and see it. So, so many connections here uh, to Gettysburg in this. It's kind of amazing, really, how this battle is so interconnected to so many things and how the Civil War is just so interconnected. And if Eric and I sound more amped up than usual today, I think it's not only because we're talking about one of our favorite topics, but like we said before, man, just the energy of doing this at the Joseph Scherfe house. To Eric's point, I am literally looking out the window right now, and I would have seen where Powell and the Florida regiments would have passed on their way towards Cemetery Ridge and ultimate defeat. And I think part of it is we're on the battlefield. When we get on the battlefield, we go into guide mode. It's just natural. It's like when you step on the playing field, you step in the ring. You just immediately, the switch gets flipped and away you go. We're in guide mode. You should see all the pointing we're doing right now. We are pointing all over this dining room at the historic Joseph Scherfe property. So anyways, we digress a little bit. Back to Philip Barton Key. Uh, He is placed on the floor of a room on the ground floor of this boarding house. You're in a boarding house filled with beds, and they place this guy on the floor. Well, a crowd of gawkers starts to gather around. Again, there's a contemporary image of him literally laying on the floor of this house and people standing in the door kind of watching, and they don't even get a pillow to comfort the guy. They prop a chair under his head. And it is in that humiliating circumstances in which Philip Barton Key, the former Apollo of Washington society, will in fact breathe his last. No last words. They ask if he has anything to say to his kids, but it's just sort of an unintelligible gurgle, you know, as again, he's suffered a a fatal chest wound. No final words from Key as he expires on the floor with a chair under his head. So catching up with our story, Sickles has turned himself in and he's now headed to jail. Yeah, Sickles is incarcerated in the old Washington City, or also known as the County Jail. That was an ugly, gothic, bug-infested 1838-1839 era building in and around G and 4th Street that was even a blight on Washington back in 1859. Again, Civil War connection. This became known as the Blue Jug in the Civil War because at one point they tried to clean it up by uh, throwing a coat of paint on it. The Blue Jug no longer stands, but if you want to go see where Sickles was incarcerated, today that is the site of the National Building Museum. So Sickles is in jail. And at this point, look, he's going to get a lot of support from people. He's going to get support from uh, dignitaries, friends, family. His father visits him in jail. Teresa's father visits him in jail. And yes, there are even images of Dandy Sickles visiting him in jail. So at least in the outset here, Sickles gets, you know, kind of some some VIP treatment, as we're going to talk about with motives and that sort of thing. Washington high society really seems to be on his side, as are the newspapers. So needless to say, this is going to get all kinds of newspaper coverage. New York, Washington, San Francisco, even 
here in Gettysburg, even in Gettysburg, the people of this small farming community in Adams County were able to read about the Washington tragedy in the newspapers. Dare I say, Eric, that I wonder here in Gettysburg if Tilly Pierce, Sarah Broadhead, and Ginny Wade might have even fainted when they read the scandalous details. But again, we just don't know. And even in my own research into North Carolina newspapers, you see this covered. This was the news story of 1859. Now, it's later going to be supplanted by some other big news later in the year, a little thing called John Brown's Raid. <laughs> but up to this point, this is the biggest news story of the year. Yeah. Had everything you'd want. A sitting congressman has just shot the district attorney of Washington, D.C., over an illicit affair in a public place. This is a journalist's dream. And I think it's not a stretch to say that this is the equivalent of the O.J. Simpson trial in 1859. Yeah, one of the analogies I always make on my battlefield tours, and I I know other colleagues probably do too, I often refer to Sickles as the O.J. Simpson of Gettysburg. And it talks about what we said at the end of part one. It's a way to relate this story to modern audiences. Now, I don't know about you, but I more and more find people on tours, though, who don't know the O.J. Simpson reference. And then you got to, you know, you got to kind of stop and explain that to them. And it just gets messy. It's only a two hour tour. So, you got, you know, you got to kind of keep things rolling. But I did want to touch on the newspapers, as we just said, because I think it's important to emphasize and we probably can't emphasize enough. Public opinion was in his favor. Public opinion was in Sickles' favor. You know, the aggrieved husband protecting his wife, protecting his property from this scandalous adulterer. And for the most part, the papers did not question the outcome, but they did appreciate that in the, you know, in the fact of jurors' prudence, all of this needed to sort of come to light. And let's get the facts of the case out here. And no doubt Sickles will be honorably acquitted because of that. Yeah, and I think that's when you read about the coverage almost in real time. What's amazing is no one's really thinking the verdict is in doubt. Everybody says, hey, we're going to go through the motions, but we know how this thing's going to end. Yep. So I think keep that in mind as we talk about the trial moving forward here. Yeah, not to give away too many spoilers, but yeah, that's kind of the way this is rolling. So as we are moving from arrest to trial in March of 1859, Sickles being a well-respected member of Washington society with a lot of friends, some favors are coming into Sickles. One of those is assembling, for lack of a better term, a legal dream team to come to the defense of Sickles. Now, we mentioned that most likely the verdict is a foregone conclusion, but you know what? If you're going to trial for murder, you want to hedge your bets and make sure I've got the best legal representation that I can. So we're beginning to see some of the best legal minds coming together in the defense of Dan Sickles. So as this dream team is being assembled, the opening of the trial will be April the next month, and the judge presiding over the trial was Judge Thomas H. Crawford. Now, Crawford, as I was doing some research on him, you know, I saw the name. I said, you know what? I want to dig in. Who was this guy? Who was the judge? Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, he is born in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, just 35 miles west of us over the mountain, of course. Confederate forces passed through Chambersburg in the Gettysburg campaign. He's going to graduate from Princeton in 1804. He's going to study law, and he's admitted to the bar in 1807 and will 
commence his legal practice in Chambersburg. Crawford was a Jacksonian Democrat, and he's going to go on to serve two terms in Congress. Of course, he's doing this under presidency of Andrew Jackson. Of course, being a Jacksonian Democrat in the age of Jackson is a pretty good position to be in. He's going to serve as a commissioner to investigate alleged frauds in the sale of a creek reservation in 1836. Later, he's appointed by President Martin Van Buren as Commissioner of Indian Affairs and served from October of 1838 to October of 1845. Later, he is appointed by President James K. Polk as a judge in the Criminal Court of the District of Columbia in 1845 and will serve in that capacity until 1861 when the court was reorganized. So kind of an interesting background on the judge that's going to preside over this. Most importantly, though, it was noted that if you were a sitting congressman charged with a crime and it happens to be before Judge Crawford, you've probably got the odds in your favor. It was said that he would not convict a congressman or senator for anything. Maybe going back to his days as a congressman, maybe some reverence for the office, who knows, but I think kind of an interesting thing. So not only do we have Sickles with a legal dream team, They've got public opinion on their side. And just in case, we got a judge that is fairly amiable to our position here. Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, Sickles Dream Team, so this is probably a good opportunity to segue into that. And as well, another kind of reference to the famed O.J. Simpson trial of our era. Eric, when I go out across the country and I talk about this topic, I talk about Sickles. Again, somebody will always try to uh, stump me a little bit and say, hey, young fella, I bet you didn't know that Edwin Stanton was Sickles's defense lawyer. And again, we get that all the time. Of course, Edwin Stanton, very well known to Civil War enthusiasts as the uh, Secretary of War in the, uh, the Lincoln administration. However, Stanton did not lead the so-called dream team. So I can usually rebut that by saying, well, did you know that James Topham Brady was actually the lead attorney on the case? And of course, since most Americans today don't know the name James T. Brady, uh, you know, we usually sort of get the awkward silence before we move on to the next topic. So let's talk about James T. Brady, the leader of the dream team. So James Brady was the son of Irish immigrants who first settled in Newark, New Jersey, and then moved on to New York City, which is probably where he came into contact with Dan Sickles. Brady was the product of a privileged education, and in 1831, while still a student, he aided his father, a lawyer, in various trials. So he's getting an introduction and practical experience in the law at an early age. He was admitted to the New York Bar in 1836, and over the next two decades, James Brady became known as a leader of the New York Bar. He was connected to almost every important case of the time, whether as a defense attorney or a prosecutor. He became state district attorney in 1843 and was later asked to be the United States Attorney General, but he turned down the offer. Now, it is said that Brady was fascinated by issues of insanity, but really the guy was beyond proficient in all areas of the law. As a criminal defense attorney, he won 51 out of 52 murder trials, and it was said that he never lost a case in which he was before a jury for more than a week, and in that time, he could make the jury see everything through his eyes. So Sickles has literally gone out and gotten the best and the brightest in James T. Brady. 
And then they supplement the team with other attorneys. Edwin Stanton, John Graham, John Graham, a New York attorney, brother of future Brigadier General Charles Graham, who again will fight here at the Peach Orchard across the street from where we're sitting. People often don't realize that, that the Graham family and the Sickles family were were so well connected. Thomas Mahar, the, uh, the Irish Brigade guy, he's part of the defense team at one point. So this is high-powered attorneys, but it's led by James Brady. Now, one of the more interesting things that I actually own in my collection, I don't really collect a lot, but what I do have, I like to think has sentimental connections or I have a reason for having it. But not only was James T. Brady a great attorney, he also dabbled as a writer. And in my collection, I own a work written by James T. Brady, published in 1861. It's entitled A Christmas Dream. Now, really, it's basically a knockoff of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, but nonetheless, it's the thought that counts. And I'm thinking maybe this December, maybe do we do a dramatic reading of James T. Brady's A Christmas Dream for our listeners to really get them in the holiday spirit? I think it's great because what says Christmas more than James T. Brady? I can't think of anything. But what does it say about this guy that he is, you know, he is just so proficient in everything that he can go from basically defending Congressman Dan Sickles to writing Christmas Carol knockoffs? I mean, the guy just was brilliant. And maybe, I mean, this is published in 1861. This is 1859. Who's to say he's not working on this as he's defending Dan Sickles? Yeah, multitasking, as we would say today. So, okay, so we got the dream team. Boy, I'm betting the prosecution has a dream team of their own to confront James T. Brady. They do, right? Right? There is a dream team here on the prosecution side, right? Team is plural. Yes. So it's a dream guy. Individual guy. Dream guy. Yeah. As we often see in very high profile cases involving people with good connections and means, the defense usually has a lot more firepower than the prosecutors. You think about it, you've got multiple attorneys with their staffs and their abilities going up against one guy. Now, eventually he's going to be augmented. I believe the family of Key is going to put some money in to maybe help (laughs) get some more bodies on this, but they're going to be outnumbered severely. The individual prosecuting this case was Robert Old. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that name might ring a bell to some Civil War buffs. He's later going to be involved with the prisoner exchange Mm -hmm. working for the Confederacy. So he's going to be highly involved in that. Also, going through some research as essentially one of the heads of the prisoner exchange, one of the individuals that he is going to deal with in the fall of 1863 in that capacity is Brigadier General Solomon Meredith. Commander of the Iron Brigade oh, here again. Iron Brigade fans, oh. there's your there's your reference. There he is, Solomon Meredith, Long Saul. Here he is, <laughs> dealing with a guy that couldn't get Dan Sickles. Wow. As Eric mentioned, Robert Old, Confederate agent of exchange for prisoners from 62 to 65. Late 63, he is also dealing with John Graham former Sickles defense attorney who at that time is trying to lobby for the release of his brother, Charles Graham, who has been captured here at the Peach Orchard, where Eric and I are doing this podcast. So, I mean, if we're not just coming up with six degrees of Sickles here, I mean, this is, my, my head is starting to hurt from all these connections. 
And who was Charles Graham exchanged for? I'll give everybody a chance to uh, think about that for a moment. Charles Graham was exchanged for Brigadier General James Kemper, who we covered really in our Gettysburg movie episode of the podcast, probably as well as a little bit of maybe the What Was Lee Thinking episode. I can't remember. But people who watch the Gettysburg movie always think Kemper dies because that's his last word in the movie. He's not. He is exchanged for Graham, which is helped arranged by Robert Old, which is helped arranged with the defense attorney, John Graham. Like I said, I'm just I'm if we keep going on here, I'm going to confuse myself because these connections are just getting crazy. So if people are thinking this is the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, why are you talking about an event that is not Gettysburg related? Folks, if you study history long enough, it's all interconnected. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. But we do want to show some of these more interesting connections that we have yeah. to this case and to this event. As we record in the House of Sickles, of course. Okay, let's move on. Should we get to the trial? Well, before we have a trial, though, we have to have jury selection. And that's an important part of any case, selecting the jury of your peers that will hear you out and decide your fate. And Jim, I think you got a little bit about the jury selection process in this case. Yeah, the bottom line is they have a really difficult time finding a fair and impartial jury. As we said before, the opinion of society is clearly on Sickles' side. So what they really have a hard time doing, and remember, the jury is all going to be white men. They have a hard time finding white, educated men who are willing to give it an impartial shake. Most of these guys are saying, hey, look, I'm married. I would do the same thing he did. So jury selection takes a little while. They finally find, you know, 12 men who are going to agree to appear on this jury. But, you know, again, it's just another one of these things that sort of starts to be rolling in the defense's favor. You know, if I'm Robert Old, the one prosecutor sitting at that table, man, I'm I'm thinking this is going to be tough as many prosecutors have in his situation yeah this right is, this is bad for him now the thing that he's got in his favor as we start the actual trial the thing that the prosecution has in their favor is sickles shot key down in broad daylight in front of multiple eyewitnesses so as the prosecution goes first you know basically the idea is hey we're just going to call people to the stand and tell us what you saw and ultimately 28 witnesses are going to get called by the prosecution. And, you know, the questioning goes along the lines of, did you see Sickles shoot Key? Yes, I did. And, you know, and that's kind of just how it goes. So you might be thinking, okay, I can kind of persuade public opinion just by pointing out that, look, you know, he shot the guy down. And if you're not going to give me murder, you have to at least give me something like manslaughter. So I think Old is probably hoping he's going to at least get one of those, you know, if he can just prove that, yes, the, uh, the defendant killed Key. So as we've talked a little bit about the strategy the prosecution has, what about now the strategy the defense has? And as Jim pointed out, they're at a disadvantage. Sickles shot the guy in broad daylight with lots of witnesses. So the initial defense of it wasn't him doesn't fly. So you can't cast reasonable doubt here. So what do you do? Well, there's a couple tactics that defense attorneys can do in this situation. One of those is make the case not so much about your client, mm -hmm. but about the victim. Mm -hmm. Not only that, bring the wife into things. And by chance, we might try some new legal strategies that are floating around as well. So let's kind of talk a little bit now about the defense here. And before we do that, I want to issue my own legal disclaimer Eric and I are Battle of Gettysburg 
historians. We are not law experts. So, you know, guys, especially I know we have some lawyers in the audience. Don't bust our chops too hard on this. We're going to try to present, you know, the history of the case to what we think is our satisfaction. But please, you know, save save the letters about, well, you know, you got this ruling wrong or that sort of thing. And I'm just throwing that out as, as a disclaimer. I know our super fans are the best and the fairest in all the land. But, you know, attorneys sometimes can be a little sticky on the details. So, folks, give us a break. Yeah, keep in mind the extent of my legal knowledge is I took a constitutional law class in college and I've seen every episode of Law and Order. Yeah, there you go, right? And so that's what I'm working with right, right now. Right. Well, if anybody can be a Gettysburg historian, anybody can be an attorney, right? Same same thing, same kind of training. Or battlefield guy. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. Just learn how to point and do it. Okay, let's get to it. So first of all, I'm just going to point out Sickles pleads not guilty. Note, he doesn't say not guilty by reason of insanity or anything of that nature. He just pleads not guilty. The trial has been basically remembered as quote unquote, and I'm making air quotes, the supposed first successful use of temporary insanity ever presented before an American court. Um, that's debated, and we'll talk about that a little bit. The insanity defense had been accepted since, I guess, at least as early as 1843, but there's more playing into it than that. And as Eric said, we're kind of now shifting this onto the victim and Teresa Sickles. And what I always kind of summarize as there's three, at least three basic points of the defense. Point one, Sickles' wife and friend were committing adultery. Well, adultery is a bad thing. The Bible says that adultery is a sin. And the Bible, in the husband's rights, gave Sickles the right to sort of act the way he did. And there's something about that called the unwritten law. Now, the unwritten law basically said that, you know, if, if your spouse is either seduced or sexually abused, an unwritten law exists that sort of gives the aggrieved husband the right to kill the offending party. So you're kind of sort of dragging the unwritten law into that. But then last but not least, the heinousness of the crime had affected Sickles's mind to the point that there had not been sufficient time for his passion to cool. So I think in sort of the modern parlance, we would sort of consider this more crime of passion, but yeah, it's been sort of remembered and passed down over time as quote unquote, the first temporary insanity defense. And I think that's an interesting point, and we want to make that very clear. That's not the main tenet of their all. defense. Not at all. It's part of it, but I think really the biggest thing is they know that odds are the guys in that jury, they're good church-going fellows. They read their Bible. They love their God. They're going to appreciate that. Also, they understand that, hey, put yourself in the shoes of your defense attorney. What you try to do is hope that members of the jury can empathize with your client. Put yourself in his shoes. Mm -hmm. What would you have done? Yep. I think most of those guys in that jury are going to say, you know what? Yeah, I'd have done the same exact thing. So they're laying that foundation there for what's ultimately going to be Sickles' acquittal. 
Yeah, and I've had several attorneys over the years tell me that this is a classic example of jury nullification. And if you don't know what jury nullification is, it generally occurs when members of a criminal trial jury believe that a defendant is guilty, but they choose to acquit because the jurors basically believe that either the law is unjust, the prosecutor has misapplied the law, or the punishment for the crime is too harsh. And as I've said, I've had several law people tell me over the years that this is a uh, perfect example of that. And one of those who reached out to us was superfan David, who yeah. is an attorney who really said, hey, I'm looking at this as being jury nullification. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. so I think it's kind of cool that we yeah. were getting that. We were learning things here on, on this case. Um, I never really thought of it so much as jury nullifications. I just thought, hey, you're putting down a really good defense, but I think it makes perfect sense. And way to go, superfan David. See, we have lawyers in the audience. We have all kinds of people. So if we ever get in trouble, we got lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to add, so as we continue down the path here, so many times over the years, and again, I've heard people say, well, this is just unfair. You know, Sickles had affairs and now they're sort of putting Teresa's affair on trial. Well, again, any prior affairs by Sickles are not facts of the case. It doesn't really play into either the defense or the prosecution strategy, whereas the prosecution strategy has to prove that adultery occurred and that it was really, really bad. And that it was so bad that Sickles was rightfully provoked into doing this. So after the prosecution gets done with their case, did you see Sickles shoot key? Yes, we did. The dream team and the defense now goes into overdrive. And what they're going to do is they're going to trot out 43 witnesses who knew about the affair, talking about Key and Teresa basically going at it. And it was said that Sickles broke down three times and had to be accused from the courtroom. And on one occasion, as Stanton escorted him out, it was said that Sickles's vision was quenched in scalding tears, his limbs paralyzed, his forehead throbbing as though it had been bludgeoned by some ruffian and his whole frame convulsed. So here you go. We have another emotional breakdown from Sickles. Maybe a little theater for the courtroom. Maybe not. But I think it's a great quote. And if you look at it from two points, one, if you're the prosecution, you could say adultery's wrong. Dan Sickles is an adulterer. But you know what? How many guys in that jury are going to say, well, I don't want my wife cheating on me, mm -hmm. but I think I could probably get away with it. Yep. So once again, I don't think that would be a, a argument that would really resonate. And also, if you're trying to use this situation that he was so aggrieved in the moment, why not have him be aggrieved as he's hearing it again? He's yeah. reliving the pain and the trauma. And this is only an, a small glimpse into what he was going through on that day. It's a brilliant defensive strategy. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. With a great performance by Sickles. Again, his forehead throbbing as though it had been bludgeoned by some ruffian. That's awesome. Eric mentioned before that Judge Crawford seems to be a pro-congressman sort of thing. That doesn't mean that everything went in the defense's favor. For example, the judge ruled for the prosecution that Teresa's confession was not admissible. But... It turned up in the next day's newspapers. And there's a couple of noteworthy things there. A, remember what we said in part one, you know, Teresa's confession talked about having connection in the Sickles house. I mean, for 1859, this is crazy, scandalous stuff. 
But I always make the Gettysburg connection at this point to say, well, what do you know? Look at how Sickles is using the newspapers to save his neck in 1859. And don't we see a similar strategy by Sickles in 1863 and 64 when you could replace Teresa Sickles with George Meade? This is what Sickles does, man. If you're coming after him, he's going to the newspapers. And I don't care if I humiliate my wife in public, I'm going to do it to get off. And you also see Sickles probably learning this lesson very early in life. There's Mm -hmm. the old adage, don't get in an argument with someone that buys ink by the barrel. (laughs) And Sickles understands the power of the press. He understands the power of the papers very early. Mm -hmm. And Sickles is very comfortable doing this. And I think as Jim pointed out, it's a tactic we're going to see replayed time and time again in Sickles' life. If Only the letter by Teresa had been sent by Historicus. If only. If only. That that would seal the deal on it. But to this day, we have no idea who Historicus is. Of course not. I can't imagine who that would have been. No, no idea. It's one of life's mysteries. Maybe he's in the courtroom here this day. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. Now, one person who is not in the courtroom is Teresa Sickles. So she is not called to testify during the course of the trial and pretty quickly is sent home to New York City, where she will more or less live out the rest of her days in seclusion. Again, it's a sad story. Now, I have... As I've alluded to throughout the course of the uh, the podcast, I have some contemporary newspaper images of a lot of this. One of the ones I have is of Teresa leaving the Sickles home and being escorted away to New York City. And it's just great because in the image, everybody is shielding their eyes from her. They're shielding their face from her. Nobody could look at her. She was, you know, she was branded as the Scarlet Woman. You didn't want to be alone with her. You didn't want to look at her. You didn't want to have your name associated with her in the newspapers. And look, for whatever faults she might have or might not have committed in having an affair with the scoundrel Philip Barton Key, you can't help but not feel sorry for Teresa just kind of being caught in the middle between these two guys. Now this leads me to, I think, a natural question. She's going to New York. Dan's tied up with the trial. Who's looking after Dandy? Good question. I'm thinking Sickles gets custody of the dog. You know, maybe Dad George Sickles or somebody watches Dandy by day. Yeah, and and Sickles was such a noted animal lover that certainly, actually, frankly, Dandy probably got better care than Teresa. You know, she probably did. You know, Dandy probably did do that. And again, before anybody tags us on Facebook with an aha moment, again, I think we said previously, Dandy did visit Sickles in jail. So there is that going on, too. So I think at this point, it's a good time to sort of address, lack of a better term, The elephant in the courtroom, which is the idea of temporary insanity in the defense. We've kind of hit on it a couple times here. And this is really, of the listener questions we had, a lot of them revolved around this. So we're going to kind of do a combined answer for them. Because I think, you know, we have some very perceptive listeners. And I think they are all kind of noting that, you know, yes, it's famous for it. But how much did it really play a role here and such? And was it the first use of this quote-unquote so we're going to kind of address this a little bit and hopefully, you know, get some resolution on it. Yeah, so we don't want to get bogged down in this. As we said, we're not lawyers by trade. Certainly, as we said, one of the basic points of the defense 
was that the crime was so bad that Sickles had been overcome with with passion, more or less, and that this sort of governed his actions. As we also said, this has been popularly remembered as the first temporary insanity defense. And there's even a lot of evidence to the contrary to acknowledge that even that's probably not true. For example, my friends, super fans, Steve and Ellie, a year or two ago, made me aware of a case that occurred, Eric, in North Carolina. In the fall of 1851, when future Confederate congressman William Avery was beaten up by another man. Avery then responded the next time these two guys met by basically shooting the guy dead. Avery was brought to trial for the murder, but was acquitted on the grounds, at least in part, of extreme provocation leading to temporary insanity. So even the idea that the Sickles trial is the first time this has ever been done, probably not true. But more important than that, really, the cornerstone of the defense is the adultery, Sickles protecting his property, and sort of this unwritten rule. I'm going to quote from Edwin Stanton. If you don't believe me, what did Edwin Stanton say about this? And in closing arguments, Edwin Stanton said that the theory of our case was Key's immoral power over Teresa. Enormous, monstrous, and altogether unparalleled in the history of American society, dragging her day by day through the streets in order that he might gratify his lust. The husband beholds him in the very act of withdrawing his wife from his roof, meets him in that act and slays him, and we say that the right to slay him stands on the firmest principles of self-defense. Self-defense, that was the theory of the case. And this brings up an interesting point. We have used the term defend your property. The property we're speaking of is Teresa Sickles, which that's really terrible to think of a woman being just property. I know they're a person, but this is the mindset in the mid-19th century, and it brings into all kinds of things, the sense of honor, the sense of mm-hmm. you know, possession and your role as a man in society. And yes, it's not a, when we hear defending your property, you think, well, is Key trying to kick in the door of the Sickles house and kill Sickles? No, but he might as well be. Yeah, he might, right. And so I think that's where we see this at play. I think the biggest takeaway we, we can come from this, though, is there was a lot of things that work in the defense. Temporary insanity was not the key part of that, pun intended. But it is maybe not the first use, but I would argue it's probably the first popularized mm-hmm. use. Yep. That yep. maybe the first time this has kind of come to the forefront here. Because Sickles has got a lot of great legal minds working for yep. him. There's other great legal minds. Clearly, somebody is going to have figured this out at some point. Yeah, and again, this is getting huge newspaper coverage. The Avery Trial, 1851, rural North Carolina. Eh, you know, if you're kind of outside the Mid-Atlantic region, you're probably, you probably haven't really read a lot about that. But the Sickles Trial... Coast-to-coast coverage from San Francisco to Gettysburg to New York and Washington. So as, as we've said, it's kind of more popularly remembered for that when really it probably doesn't you know deserve the, to be known as the first case of that. I do want to add, though, that Judge Crawford did in his jury instructions include the fact that it is for the jury to decide what was the state of Mr. Sickles' mind as the capacity to decide on the criminality of the homicide. If the jury has any doubt, 
either in reference to the homicide or the question of sanity, Mr. Sickles should be acquitted. So what Crawford was basically telling the jury there was, look, if you have any doubt over Sickles's quote unquote sanity and his ability to sort of make a rational decision, then you should acquit him. So Crawford did kind of accept this, you know, again, in giving those instructions to the jury. So as we wrap up the quote unquote temporary insanity part of this episode, our last listener question on the topic comes to us from Facebook, Superfan Adam, and he's going to ask, was the terminology used actually temporary insanity? And if so, who came up with it? And Jim, mm-hmm. I think you got a little bit on that. Well, I do a little bit. And you know, and again, caveat, we're not lawyers, but I mean, I've been through the transcripts of this case as reported in the newspapers, which is where you're going to find most of the details are that. And again, the term temporary insanity is not being thrown around in this case. Now, as we just read in Crawford's instructions, the use of sanity does come up at times, but this, this temporary insanity legal defense term, I don't really see it being commonly used at the time in conjunction with the, uh, with the case. I would more characterize this, and I think most people would, really as a crime of passion. You know, the crime of passion, which as I understand it, ultimately kind of morphed over time into the temporary insanity defense. In quote-unquote temporary insanity as a defense, my understanding is that really became more popular in the 20th century. So I would sort of pivot this back to more crime of passion than temporary insanity. And I think what we're seeing is there's parts of what we've come to know as temporary insanity in this, but it's just not known as that. Now, I'd like to know when that really first became popularly used as a term. I think that just for our knowledge, we'd like to know. So, and if our lawyers out there, any of our fans know, let us know. We'd be interested in in knowing that. Yeah, and by the way, my understanding is temporary insanity as a defense is not really all that commonly used today. That's what I've read. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but super fan David, super fan Eric, other attorneys in the audience, uh, you know, let us know what you think on that. So the prosecution has put out their case. The defense has put up theirs. It's now time for the jury to make their decision. Spoiler alert. Dan Sickles is acquitted. Yeah, I feel like we should celebrate at this point. The jury was only gone for 70 minutes. Turns out all 11 of the jurors were all in agreement on the vote and only one needed time to pray for divine guidance. Uh, But God must have spoken to him within 70 minutes because they all quickly agreed. And here we go. We're acquitted. At least it wasn't 36 minutes. Woo, that would have been appropriate. It would have been appropriate. Pandemonium in the courtroom. A friend's wife slapped Sickles on the back and said, now we've got you off this time. You be a good boy. Stanton supposedly dances a jig in the middle of the courtroom. Spectators are literally trying to rip Sickles' clothes off. We have to get an escort, you know, an armed guard to, to get him out of the courtroom. This is like when Ric Flair beat Harley Race at Starcade. Exactly. For the first NWA championship. And this is the first time that uh, Sickles has kind of gotten out of trouble. But as we'll see, not the last. Yeah, exactly. You know, and again, we could just go on. Everybody's celebrating. Brady is going to party with the uh, jury that night at the hotel. Maybe he read them a rough draft of his Christmas Carol knockoff. Uh, The jury foreman said that he thanked God he had lived to render such a verdict. And I think the Times, the New York Times probably summarized it. The jury gave their verdict on the principle that the man who violates the honor and desolates the home of his neighbor 
does so at the peril of his life, and if he falls by the outraged husband's hands, he deserves his doom. For the most part, guys, newspaper coverage of the time, I have never seen any public commentary about temporary insanity and a novel defense. That's not what the trial was about. It was about self-defense, adultery, and this unwritten law, at least in my opinion, and jury nullification, as my lawyer friends would tell me. So now we have Sickles acquitted. Public opinion is on his side. He's got these hard times behind him. And seemingly, at this point, it looks almost like just a little bump in the road, for lack of a better term. His political career will probably go on. Heck, if anything, voters will probably like him even more after this. But as we're going to see, there's going to be some fallout of this that I don't think many people maybe saw coming. little plot twist. And what we see here is some questions that we that we had from folks asking about kind of lack of a better term the fallout from the trial one of those I was on Facebook from Superfan Robert. He's going to write, The 19th century had its fair share of famous acquittals. He gave the example of Lizzie Borden. Oh, I love that case. But there was usually a social sentence like shunning. Did Sickles face any non-legal backlash from society? The answer to that is initially, no. I don't think there was, as we said, we cannot find any evidence that this was held against him. If anything, he was propped up as a pillar of what a man is supposed to do in 19th century America. But then he takes Teresa Sickles back and public opinion changes drastically. Yes, it does. The New York Herald is first to report on July 12th that both of them are living near each other in New York. Their parents had talked them out of divorce. They were going to resume marital relations. And it is said their love is greater than ever. Now, we should point out they had corresponded during the trial. This was not made public, but obviously it's something as historians we know today happened. And yeah, what seems to happen is public reaction is immediate and hostile to this reconciliation. And if you think about it, and if you think about the way people kind of explained it in the press, it boils down to a couple of things. So wait a minute, you can forgive Teresa, but why didn't you forgive Key? You know, geez, we went to all this trouble to get you off. And now you're, you know, now you're doing this to us. Some people thought it was just representation of a bad state of society. And again, political success and power are to be had at any sacrifice of honor and morality. So the shunning happens because he takes Teresa back. And what you see now is a lot of his high-powered friends run for cover, basically abandon him. Southern diarist Mary Chestnut probably has the best example of this. She is uh, in the house, the halls of Congress one day, and she sees a well-dressed man sitting by himself on a bench. And she says to a friend, well, who is that? And the friend sniffs, oh, that's Dan Sickles, you know, and the implication being, you know, stay away from him. And Mary Chestnut famously observes that he he was left to himself as if he had smallpox nobody wanted to be near him and newspaper coverage again turns against him and what seemed like was going to go all right is now by the summer gone all wrong and this leads us to another question we had from one of our super fans on facebook michael and he's going to ask how is this case a representation of a typical relationship in a 19th century marriage? And you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. What's typical about murdering your wife's lover in broad daylight? Look beyond the murder. Think more about what this represents about 19th century society as a whole. 
it's okay to kill a guy in defense of your property. Just don't take the property back. Yep. Yep. I think that's what it shows that there's very real levels of where males are in society and where females are in society. Interestingly enough, in the 1850s, when we think about the great social movements we are seeing, certainly we think of abolition, but right there are two coming up. One, temperance. We talked about in episode one, stimulants, alcohol, the damage they have to families, but also the early stages of what we would come to be known as the women's rights movement. We begin to see this developing at the same time. So we look at the society as we see it, but we also see there are people trying to change that society. But certainly by 1859, cultural views, they are very much in view. Look at that, folks. Social history here on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Yeah, you know, what I would add to that is think about the situation that Dan and Teresa both have in front of them. Now, Teresa Sickles, she's got no future. You know, nobody is going to touch her if she stays not only single, but a single mother. So it makes sense, obviously, for her to try to reconcile with Dan. Frankly, it's the only hope of a future she has. But in his case, you know, some people thought, well... Sickles didn't want to go through a divorce. Maybe that was why they got back together. Sickles, though, did what Sickles always does. He took to the newspapers and he basically said, look, I couldn't allow the wife of my child and my child to be dragged through the gutter like this. So we reconciled whether you like it or not. The decision was mine. And, you know, we're going to move forward with it. And one thing that has often struck me about Sickles, and it goes back to this idea, oh, Sickles is an idiot. Sickles is not an idiot. Mm -mm. And he's also has a pretty shrewd political mind. He's probably looking at what are my real options here? And in his mind, this is the best of probably other options. Because if you just let her go, guess what your opponent's going to do in the next election? Basically, he left his kid out to be destitute. Now, forget Teresa. We don't care about her. But the kid. That could play against Sickles. I think he's saying, hey, it makes me, once again, look like the hero, the protector. Yes, she made a grave mistake, but she didn't know any better. And I am protecting my wife and child to make sure that they at least have some semblance of a decent existence. Yeah, so a lot of this social situation is something that we have a hard time relating to in 2020. But that was the era that our Civil War heroes lived in. So that's the way it was. So the biggest fallout is really Sickles' political career. At this point, it's done. He's finished. He is going to now join the group of political figures that arrive on the scene like a meteor and quickly fade away. Now, as we know, Sickles is not going to be done with politics. He will return to Congress one day. Mm -hmm. But this does allow him, hey, I'm not running for re-election. My political career is done. What do I do? We talked about the resiliency of Dan Sickles. Just so happens little thing happens in April of 1861 in Charleston Harbor. Confederate forces fire on Fort Sumter. We've got a war. Guess who now has a second act? You got it. It's Dan Sickles. Yeah, you know, and this is why chapter one of Sickles at Gettysburg literally dealt with the murder trial, because this is the straight line that I always draw from pre-war Washington, pre-war New York City, to the battlefields like Gettysburg. And that's exactly what happens. Sickles... 
At the beginning of the American Civil War, he is practicing law as a private citizen back home in New York. He sees the opportunity. He raises troops. He gets himself politically reconnected again. He joins the army. And he's going to, over the course of the next two years, from 1861 to the summer of 1863, become the general Dan Sickles that we know so well here on the, uh, the battlefields of Gettysburg. So, of course, the career of General Sickles is a topic for another time. But the point of this story tonight was it drove Sickles out of politics and it needed him to look for a new opportunity, which led to his role in the Civil War. And I'm having kind of a reassessment of how my life has turned out. What if Sickles had been found guilty and goes to jail? Mm -hmm. Or what if he hadn't taken Teresa back and his political career continues? I might never have learned about General Dan Sickles. I might not be a licensed battlefield guide. I might not be here doing this podcast right now in the Joseph Scherfe house. Wow. I would still be here because contrary to myth, I didn't have a Sickles man crush. So I would have been here in Gettysburg, but I might be doing a podcast with another guy tonight if you weren't here. Well, there we go. Yeah. So if you love the show and the dynamic we have, you got to thank Dan Sickles. Another straight line. If you hate the show and the dynamic we have, Blame Dan Sickles. It's how things go. We had some listener questions, though, on this transition from politics to military, because on the surface, it seems this guy's incredibly damaged goods in any public capacity whatsoever. I'll make the point, war changes everything. Mm -hmm. So the first question we have is from superfan Robert. Why did Lincoln, a Republican, put a Democrat like Sickles into a position of power. Well, it kind of goes back to one of my favorite sayings that supposedly comes from President Lyndon Johnson. And he once said, bringing in a political rival into the mix, he says, sometimes it's better for them having them to be peeing out of the tent than on the tent. Sickles, even though he's got baggage, he's damaged goods, he's still got some pull in New York. Mm. He still knows people. And mm. also, Lincoln needs leaders. He also does yeah. not want this to be viewed as a Republican right. war. Exactly. Right. So, right. hey, think about, look at the political parties of some of these generals that Lincoln puts as head of the Army of the Potomac. Yep. You know, it's not uncommon. I think he's trying to have a big tent to this war effort. That's where the whole concept of these political generals comes from. And although Sickles is one of the best known poster boys of that, he's not the only political general of the war by any stretch of the imagination. Lincoln is kicking off a very unpopular war effort. He needs immigrants. He needs Democrats. He needs guys with connections in New York. Sickles would fit at least two of those three bills. That's the reason why Sickles kind of joins the military at the right time. He gets somebody like Lincoln to kind of enable his rise within the army. And also there's this sense in the United States of the idea of the citizen soldier, that if you are a leader in your private life and in your public life, that will make you be able to be a leader on a battlefield. And it's not just Lincoln that does this. Look at who the first colonels of regiments elected are often. If they don't have military backgrounds, they're usually lawyers mm -hmm. or business people or mayors or sheriffs. So you see this across the board. It's not just Lincoln that right. sees this. Right. It's, I think, across society. You know, and even when Sickles joins the army, I know we're kind of getting off topic a little bit, but even when he joins the army, he at least claimed later, hey, I just wanted to join up as a high private and serve with the fellas. You know, and I can't, I have a hard time imagining privates 
Sickles, but probably would have been more likely would have been Colonel Sickles, commander of a regiment. Maybe you get a brigade eventually. But again, you know, he works the connection with the Lincolns to kind of move up the ranks a little faster than that. Again, fodder for another time, but just something for uh, for you guys to think about as we wrap up. We have another listener question kind of on this topic from Superfan Mike. And I like how he phrases this. Considering his antics before this, the incident itself, the ensuing drama and, and circus, and his relatively limited experience as a combat commander, how did the Lincoln administration justify his appointment to Major General in early 1863? Very easy. It's wartime. We don't really care what you did before. Also, going back to the question, hey, he's friends with Lincoln. He's got Joseph Hooker vouching for him. Mm -hmm. At this point, Hooker's still good with Lincoln. Lincoln had no problem horse trading and making what we maybe consider bad decisions to get something else he wants. So Lincoln's probably looking at this, hey, I help a Democrat out here. Maybe down the road if I need something, they'll help me out later as well. So I don't think it really, by 1863, has much of an appearance at all in terms of their thinking. Yeah, well, I would more or less agree. And by the other thing, too, that I would just add, if you take what people said later at face value, and I know that's dangerous, but if you kind of take what they said at face value, there does seem to be some indication that Lincoln considers Sickles an aggressive, fighting kind of general. Part of that, again, is no doubt from Sickles spinning exploits and that sort of thing during their various dinner parties and cocktail parties. But Lincoln takes a shining to Sickles. Remember, there's a lot of mistrust and distrust going on in the Union High Command. You know, McClellanites and, and you know, Democrats and West Pointers who so supposedly don't have their heart in the war effort. So if you get a guy like Lincoln... And you get a guy like Sickles, who's, you know, kind of earned Lincoln's trust. Yeah, it makes sense that Sickles is going to be one of those guys for all the various reasons we've talked about that Lincoln is going to elevate into the high command. And looking at this as well, sometimes people refer to the you know, cowardly Sickles murdering kid. Yeah, yeah. You know what? He went right out of their guns, faced him eye to eye, got into a physical altercation, and then blows him away in the streets. If he can do that in Lafayette Square... What's he going to do on a battlefield? That's right. And one thing about Sickles, you can't call him a coward in the war. He leads from the front. He's always here. Even think about where we're at right now. Where his headquarters is, is not far from where his main battle line is. So Sickles is a guy that's aggressive. He's tough. He's brave. Hey, might have the makings of being a combat leader. And you know what? Where I'm sitting at this table right now in the Joseph Scherfe house, I can kind of almost out the window here see the Trostle Farm, Sickles' headquarters, and where he was wounded. Yeah, the only thing I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with there on my comment would be, uh, we've touched on this a few times, but I just want to be clear. I've seen it represented on a number of occasions that Sickles cowardly murdered the man in cold blood. I think, if anything, that does a great distortion to the facts of the case. As we said, he probably had great reason to think he was armed and cold-blooded. Folks, this was anything but a cold-blooded crime. Crime of passion. But we digress. So the last question we have on this topic is from Superfan Kyle, and he's going to write, Was the murder the source of any resentment within the ranks and Union High Command during the war, or was it basically all forgotten and swept under the rug? Now, in Lincoln's case, it doesn't really bother him, but what about some of the officers that Sickles serves with? And certainly, if you read some of their letters, think about Haskell, think about George Meade and others. I think certainly Sickles' past does influence the way they view him. Uh, so much of being an officer in the West Point tradition was being a gentleman. By that standard, Sickles maybe doesn't fit that so much. So 
I think that they're serving with him. I don't think it's completely forgotten. It's always there. Mm-hmm. But I think overall by this point, hey, the war is on. We've got to serve with, with the guys we have. Yeah, and I'm really kind of holding back here. I really don't want to come off like I'm self-promoting. But, folks, if you are interested in this, this was a big theme in my Sickles at Gettysburg book. And these were the types of things that I talked about. If you want to see an example of a guy in the Army who continues to resent Sickles because of the past, read Frank Haskell's memoirs. He specifically refers to the slayer of Barton Key. It's murder to give troops to such a man and things of that nature. But... For the most part, as we've said, you know, the war is going on. People got other things to think about. And that does sort of fade more and more into the background as you get into 1862 and 63. Sickles never lives it down. There will always be newspapers. There will always be fellow officers who will talk about Sickles' past. He doesn't live it down, but he does overcome it. And there are a lot of people by 1863 and beyond who, I don't want to say have forgotten about this, but, you know, maybe have kind of moved on themselves. And one of the things I found interesting when I was doing research into North Carolina newspapers around the time that Sickles becomes a brigadier general, it actually gets a lot of coverage in Southern newspapers as almost showing the righteousness of our cause. Look at our great Christian generals, and this is what the Union hirelings have to put at their command. So certainly it's there. Uh, Of course, you have to take that through the prism of of -hmm. who's writing it, almost propaganda. But I think Sickles does always have that controversy with him for the rest of his life. Yeah, so I wouldn't say swept under the rug, but I wouldn't say everybody holds it against him either. You know, there's people on both sides. So we've covered the trial. We've covered the fallout. Let's now fast forward to July 2nd, 1863 and beyond. What does this part of Dan Sickles' life tell us about, well, his most famous moment in his life here at the Battle of Gettysburg? You know, I touched on this before, and I think when you look at the big moments in Dan Sickles' life, and look, as historians... Typically, we study a person because of one thing they did or a handful of things they did. So, you know, I I'm, I don't want to make overgeneralizations, but I really do believe, as I've said before, Sickles is kind of this emotional decision maker. And so what I think on July 2nd, 1863, when he is faced with the decision to move out to the Peach Orchard and towards the Sherfy property... You know, Sickles has this character of making decisions emotionally. And I think emotional people tend to sort of not see the big picture, kind of tend to kind of just look at what's in their immediate sphere, maybe overreact a little bit. And while I think he's looking at that, you also have this baggage, guys like George Meade and things like that, who probably don't really appreciate him as a trained soldier. So I think there's some disrespect of Sickles, which, you know, would probably factor in some of the background. And again, I think you kind of have his baggage of not only being an emotional guy, but maybe somebody who still feels like he's got something to prove. I'm here. I can do it. I'm Dan Sickles. I'm going to get this done. And so, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of psychological factors that contribute to his actions on July 2nd, 1863. Not the overriding factors, because by 1863, this murder is kind of four years in the rearview mirror. But I think it's there. And I think about Sickles' experience after when basically he's ignored in the halls of Congress. Mm -hmm. He's kind of forgotten about. I think that develops a chip on his shoulder. And I think a lot of resentment. Yeah. And a lot of anger. And fast forward to July 2nd, Sickles easily could have interpreted the way that George Meade dealt with him 
as being very dismissive, brushing him aside, ignoring him. It's like the halls of Congress all over Mm -hmm. again. Well, as we see... That plays into Sickles' thinking. And of course, we could delve into all the connections Sickles has here into Gettysburg and the development of the park and things like that. But as we sort of look to wrap up the episode, we do have another direct connection on the battlefield between the Gettysburg National Military Park, the National Cemetery, and the murder of Philip Barton Key at the hands of Dan Sickles. And we had two questions on this um, from superfans Sean and Hawkeye. And basically what they asked was, you know, is it true that the fence that separates today the Evergreen Cemetery from the Soldiers National Cemetery, is that the fence that once surrounded Lafayette Square? And also, you know, how much of it was actually witness fence to the murder? So we'll just kind of dive into that because I think it is an interesting little connection that ties this all together. Yeah, I think it is. So the first of all, the fence surrounding Lafayette Square in Washington At some point, the District of Columbia decided the fence was no longer needed, and by a joint resolution of Congress initiated October of 1888 by Major General Sickles, ultimately granted the fence to the GBMA, the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association. So the fence was moved here to Gettysburg. It originally was around East Cemetery Hill before being moved to its present location in 1933. So today there is the fence, and it separates the local Evergreen cemetery from the soldiers national cemetery now before we get into the question over how much of it is original or not i just want to point out because i see this a lot in some forums supposedly when the fence was moved here sickles supposedly said now the world will see where i got away with murder I have never seen an original source on that. I have seen some otherwise what I would call responsible interpreters present that quote as a fact, but I've never actually seen that to be factual. And quite frankly, really, now the world will see where I got away from murder. Really? Really? Uh, You know, so again, another one of those apocryphal sort of colorful Dan Sickles quotes that people just sort of attribute to him without really putting any thought to. And the idea, I got away with murder, it somehow makes you think that Sickles felt he did something wrong and got off for it. I don't think Sickles spent a day of his life thinking what he did in Lafayette Square was wrong. No, actually, there's accounts of him coming back to the square with friends in the aftermath and him sort of, you know, recreating the crime and saying, of course I meant to kill him. Oh, yeah, Sickles had no guilt over this, no regret. He was like, oh, yeah, I meant to do that. A key moment in Sickles' life, that he is feels fully justified in the decision he makes and will live to his dying day defending that action. Yeah. Where have we heard that before? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's vintage Sickles. The murder trial, the peach orchard, just sort of substitutes some names and players, and the terrain is a little different, and it's like the same story in a lot of ways. Go into the newspapers, I mean, you could go on and on with this. Last part of the question, I don't know how much of the fence today is actually original. I don't know. There's segments of it. I don't believe the entire fence is the original. I was on a tour with our colleague Fred Hawthorne of the cemetery last summer, and he sort of pointed out a section that he considered original. So I don't know that the whole fence is original. I just know that at least portions of it are. And this is not uncommon in this era to see, lack of a better term, surplus at one federal area going to others because let's face it in the grand scheme of things Gaysburg National Military Park did not have the biggest budget in the world I actually saw 
couple years ago, I was at Appomattox and went to go see the North Carolina Monument there. I know, shocking, me going to see a North Carolina Monument. But when I was there, I was looking at some of the federal boundary markers that were around it, which I thought were kind of cool. And one caught my eye. This is at Appomattox. It said National Military Park on the top of the little marker there, the little green tag. And I thought to myself, well, that seems really weird. Appomattox was never a National Military Park. But then it dawned on me, probably somewhere in a warehouse somewhere was a couple hundred of these tags they're not doing anything with. Mm -hmm. You know what? It's green. It does its job. Put it at Appomattox. So I think the fence that we see at East Cemetery Hill and eventually at the Soldiers National Cemetery, this is par for the course in the way that things were shifted around this era. And we still see it to some extent today. I mean, the government still sells off surplus vehicles right. and, and things like right. that. Um, my hometown, the first sewer lines of the town were remnants of sewer lines that were put down at Cherry Point Marine Air Base. So you see it even to this day. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Our last question is, I think, a very profound one about all of this. We've talked about a lot of heavy subjects. This one, I think, brings it all together. And it's from Superfan MJ. And she asks, what would Bobo do? Well, I don't think Bobo basically had the legs to go running across the square, leap up into, into Key's crotch and start licking it like Dandy did. So um, I think Bobo probably would have been more loyal in that regard. Yeah, and you know, my beloved dog, Harper, he's only about 15 pounds, so he's not that much bigger than what Bobo was. Mm -hmm. And what Harper lacks in stature, he more than makes up for an attitude and, and toughness. And I think that even if Bobo would not have run out, I like to think Bobo would have given Key a nice snarl or at least a growl. Yeah, I, maybe. I think that's in keeping with Bobo's character. Maybe peed on his leg or something. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Or maybe even after he's been shot. Right, right. You know, I think that's what when, what we would see. So, yeah, I think you know, in the end, what would Bobo do? And I think that's a question we should all ask ourselves. And I think we should wrap up with that because what could we possibly do to top that question? So as we start to take this episode home and put a bow on things, we do want to remind you once again of our special What If Jackson Was at Gettysburg tour on May 9th, 2020. For more information on that, please email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. Also want to point out that Jim and I are both battlefield guides here at Gettysburg. If you would like a tour of us or our colleagues and friends, let us know. We'd be happy to talk to you about that and set you up for a tour. We are also available to speak at roundtables and other civic groups. So if you are looking to reach out to us for that, uh, you can contact us in a couple ways. You can reach out to us on social media, on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, and on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. You can also email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. So before we go, once again, subscribe, review, share, help us out. As we're wrapping things up, I believe we have some special thank yous for this episode. Yeah, we sure do. First of all, I want to thank again the Gettysburg Foundations in the Footsteps of Leaders program. They gave us permission to record this special two-part episode here on the ground in the Joseph Scherfee House. We could not have done it without them. And our Jackson seminar in May is also in partnership with In the Footsteps of Leaders program. So they are giving us access in the May program to the historic George 
Spangler Farm. So we want to thank our friends at the Gettysburg Foundation for that. And always, we want to thank the episode sponsor, our friend Michael Homula at RPM Search Group. Visit their website at www.rpmsearchgroup.com to see how they can help you or your company find senior and executive level talent. And most importantly, we want to thank you, the listeners, our super fans. Thank you for everything you've done. We could not ask for a more supportive group than you guys are. You amaze us every day. Thank you so very much. So as we wrap things up, our next episode will be on July 2nd, 1863. I know what you're thinking. Oh, God, another Sickles episode. (laughs) No, no, no. We're throwing you a little bit of a curveball. Maybe one of the least appreciated and unknown actions on July 2nd. Jim, when I say July 2nd, what do you think of? I think Sickles. I think Little Round Top. Some might even say Culp's Hill? Eh, not me, but somebody eh, would. Some might. Yeah. Our topic next time around is the July 2nd Battle of Hunterstown. Wade Hampton, George Custer, Judson Kilpatrick, impacts rippling throughout the battlefield. And where Custer almost gets killed. All of that on the next episode of the Battle Gettysburg Podcast. Yeah, I'm going to warn you now for people who think I have a Sickles Man crush, wait until we get going on Custer in this podcast. It's going to be great. I can't wait to record it. Folks, this might be a nine-hour episode on Hunterstown. If If it can be done, we can do it. We'll figure that out. We just won't stop talking. It'll be great. Tune in. So with that said, I am licensed battlefield guide Eric Lindblade. He's licensed battlefield guide Jim Hessler. And this is the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.